going to ask if you uh, have a Bible available that you would turn to Ephesians chapter 6. And we're also going to look at Romans 8 this morning. So if you're one of those people who wants to uh, jump ahead, Ephesians chapter 6. And I'm going to begin reading actually at verse 10. Ephesians chapter 6 and verse 10. Hear now God's holy, inspired, and inerrant word. Finally, be strong in the Lord and in the strength of His might. Put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. Therefore, take up the whole armor of God, that you may be able to withstand in the evil day, and having done all, to stand firm." Stand, therefore, having fastened on the belt of truth and having put on the breastplate of righteousness and as shoes for your feet, having put on the readiness given by the gospel of peace. In all circumstances, take up the shield of faith with which you can extinguish all the flaming darts of the evil one. Thus far the reading of God's holy word. Several people have asked me about the title for the sermon this morning. Uh, Obviously, it is recognizable in this part of the country. Uh, But I can tell you that if you uh, type those words into spell checker, I have a laptop computer that's fairly new. Uh, Spell checker uh, does not know what to do with who that. And they... uh, suggest to you other things, but I said, no, that's what I want. But according to Hudad, it's not a legitimate word or a legitimate expression. Uh, It may be slang, but we who live in this part of the country have a pretty good idea of what that means. To me, it means who has the audacity to think that they can prevail against us. Or who thinks that he can deprive us of our security? When we say who dat about our football team, it's a way of asserting confidence in our coaching staff, in our players, in our preparation in the game plan itself. It's a way of saying we can handle adversity because we are up to the task. But this morning I would say to you as Christians that when we speak confidently about our security, it's never appropriate or justified or even correct to locate our confidence in ourselves. For as we will see this morning, the only reason that we can rightfully have a hudat attitude is because we have full confidence 
in the person of the Lord Jesus Christ. If you want to think of Him this way, He's the game-breaker. He's the one who makes all the difference in whether we win or lose. In Him we have everything. Without Him we have nothing. It's as simple as that. In the passage that we just read from Ephesians 6, the Apostle Paul describes one of the essential provisions that we have as Christians to protect ourselves from the schemes of the devil. And I really appreciated the verse that was on the front of your bulletin when I walked in this morning. The reason the Son of God appeared was to destroy the works of the devil. I, I always like to remind people of that truth. Jesus did not come to play nice. Jesus did not come to negotiate uh, with delicate diplomacy with the devil. He came to break things. He came to destroy the works of the devil. And here Paul reminds us in Ephesians 6 that as Christians we have to protect ourselves from the schemes of the devil. Paul encourages us to avail ourselves of protective gear or armor in this battle of spiritual resistance. For at the end of this passage, Paul reminds us that the strategy used by the devil is to assault us with fiery darts. And we'll talk about specific assaults that he launches uh, momentarily. But if someone is tossing fiery darts in your direction, what better defense could you have than a shield? The word for shield, thurios, comes from the Greek word for door. Now, if I were preaching at the Moss Point Church this morning, I could look to my right, your left, and I could say, see that door there. It's a door we never use. It's, I measured it one day. It's at least nine feet tall. It's fairly narrow and skinny. Uh, but uh, we really don't use it uh, anymore. It's just uh, a door uh, that uh, has lost its uh, value to us. But it is sort of like a shield. It is not a broad door. It's like a shield that a soldier, a warrior would carry with him. Of course, it's too long, but it's about the right width. The uh, Roman soldiers, and Paul certainly must have had those in mind as he talked about the things he's writing about, the Roman soldiers carried with them into battle a, um, a shield that was for whole body protection. And if you've seen any Russell Crowe movies, you can imagine what they look like. I remember watching a Russell Crowe movie once. I, I think it might have been Gladiator, but sort of the, they run together in my mind. But uh, the soldiers have their shields, and uh, before you uh, realize that they are about to go into battle, uh, they water those shields down. They drench those shields in water because they know that they're going up against the enemy, and the enemy is going to be shooting uh, fiery darts in their direction. And so, you know what happens when the fiery darts hit the shields? They just sizzle out. They're duds. They don't burn through 
as they were intended to do. And that's the precise language that Paul is using here in verse 16. He says, when you have this shield of faith and you use it, you can extinguish the flaming darts of the evil one. God has given you that provision for protecting yourself. And so Paul here is writing from a battlefield perspective. He's saying the enemy is coming against you, but you have spiritual armor for your protection. So don't forget to use it. Don't neglect it. Don't leave it in the closet. Psalm 33.20 says, The Lord is our help and our shield. Proverbs 30, verse 5 says, God is a shield to those who take refuge in Him. John Owen liked to say there is a difference between the knowledge of the truth and the knowledge of the power of the truth. There's a difference between the knowledge of the truth and a knowledge of the power of the truth. We can possess factual knowledge about the character of God. We can say yes to the passage in Psalm and yes to the passage in Proverbs. God is a shield. Yes, we know that. Yes, it's recorded there. We agree that God is a shield. And yet we can have a lack of confidence in the protective qualities of God as a shield. I wanted to ask you to flip over to Romans chapter 8 for a moment. Romans chapter 8. And I know as Presbyterians you're very familiar with this. Beginning at verse 28. And we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good. For those who are called according to His purpose. For those whom He foreknew, He also predestined to be conformed to the image of His Son, in order that we might be the firstborn among many brothers. And those whom He predestined, He also called. And those whom He called, He also justified. And those whom He justified, He also glorified. What then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare His own Son, but gave Him up for us all, how will He not also with Him graciously give us all things? Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. Who is to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died. More than that, who was raised who is at the right hand of God, who indeed is interceding for us, who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Paul is telling us here that God in a very practical way keeps us secure. Paul here answers all the who dat questions. In verse 31, Paul asks a what question. The question is, what then shall we say to these 
things. But after that, he's done with the what questions. From that point on, he, his questions all employ the personal interrogative, who? Or for those with Cajun blood pulsating through their veins, who dat? Who that can be against us? That's what verse 31 says. Who that can be against us? Verse 33, who that thinks he can bring any charge against God's elect? Verse 34, who that condemns? Verse 35, who that thinks he can separate us from the love of Christ? You know, a few months ago, if someone had asked you who is public enemy number one in our country, you would have said Osama bin Laden. But Paul knows that public enemy number one always has been Satan himself. He is our spiritual public enemy. And that's who the who is in this formula of Paul's uh, words here. Satan is all too quick to send his fiery darts at you and at me as he aims at us as Christians in order to destroy our confidence, in order to uh, destroy uh, our trust our enjoyment of the grace of God, how we would like to deprive us of that confidence, how we would like to fill our lives uh, with anxiety and uh, a feeling of helplessness. You know, the first fiery dart that Satan fires at us, and we're going to identify a few of them this morning, is the fiery dart that we could label, God is against you. God is against you. That's what Satan wants to uh, whisper in your ear this morning. Satan says something like this, God is not really for you. How can you believe He is for you when you, allow, when you see the things that He has allowed to happen uh, in your life, even this year? I've been reading the biography by Eric Metaxas on Dietrich Bonhoeffer, the Lutheran pastor who opposed Nazism in Hitler's Germany in the 1930s and 40s. And I can tell you, friends, we don't have any problems. Our churches today don't have any problems compared to the church in Germany. Imagine having to take a stand against Hitler. Imagine having that on your Uh, session meeting agenda. Are we going to play nice with Hitler or are we going uh, to oppose him? We don't have any problems like that. But Satan says, and certainly in Bonhoeffer's day, he could look around and say, look at all the things that God has allowed in our church, that God has allowed in our nation. And we as Christians, what do we do? How do we respond uh, to that, Satan tries to make charges, but Paul knows that because of the work of the Lord Jesus Christ, those charges won't stick. Second fiery dart 
goes like this. I have accusations that I will bring against you because of your sins. Satan says, what can you say in your defense? Nothing. The third fiery darts like this. You say you are forgiven, but there is a payday or a payback day coming, a, a day of condemnation, a day when everything will be exposed. And Satan says, how are you going to defend yourself when that day comes? And the fourth fiery dart is like this. Given your track record, what hope is there that you will persevere to the end? You know, in John 17, Jesus is praying for his bride, the church, and he prays at one point for the church to have joy. Not just that our Heads are filled with spiritual truth. That was one of the problems that Bonhoeffer saw in the church in Germany in the 1930s. He said, we have a church that can stand up and recite the Apostles' Creed, but it can't stand up to Hitler, and it's not making a difference because it doesn't desire to suffer. It wants to avoid all problems and all suffering. And he said, that's a denial of the gospel. And so we need more than just an acknowledgement in our heads of spiritual truth. We need also, and Christ was praying for this, a church that cultivates peace and joy and assurance. And so when these fiery darts strike the Christian's water-saturated shield that shield of faith that Paul describes in Ephesians 6, those fiery darts fizzle out on contact their duds. Think of all the accusations that could have been leveled at the Apostle Paul, the very writer of these passages that we're reading this morning. He had been a persecutor of the church. Imagine all the things that Satan could bring up about Paul's past. All the blunders that he had made. All of the foolish decisions that he had made. All of the uh, activity that he had engaged in. There was so much. There was so much in Paul's past to inflict uh, guilt and fear. So for him... For Paul to be able to address these concerns is significant. It speaks loudly and clearly. Let's consider these four fiery darts. Who can be against us? You know, if Romans 8.28 means what it says, that God is working all things together for our good as Christians, then God is not against me. God is not against me. But is God for me? How do I know that God is actually for me? In the Garden of Eden, you'll remember that Satan challenged Eve on this issue. Satan, being very crafty as he is by his nature, uh, said to her uh, in so many words, it doesn't sound to me like God is for you. sounds to me uh, like he is... Holding back. 
Sounds to me like he's telling you some areas of the garden are off limits. If he really cared for you, if he really loved you, if he really wanted what is best for you, he would give you access to that area. Did God actually say you shall not eat of any tree in the garden? God sounds harsh and unreasonable. Ergo, He's not for you. Where should we look for evidence to the contrary that God is for us? Because some look at the present circumstances of their lives. Some people evaluate whether God is for them or not based on what is happening in their life right now. And if things are pleasant, if things are easy, if you've got the job of a lifetime and it's uh, just what you feel led to do and the pay is good and uh, your apartment's great and your roommate's nice and you say, but God's for me. But you change any of those equations and then you start saying, well, wait a minute. I'm not sure God's really all that excited about me. You see how easily we can stray when we let our uh, opinions of, of God be determined by whether things are going nicely for us or not uh, and suiting our expectations. Our confidence can never really be uh, founded upon our circumstances. It lies only in the provision of God to us through the person of the Lord Jesus. And this is the whole point of Romans 8.32. He who did not spare his own son but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? In other words, the only sure way that we can know that God is for us is the cross. The cross defines God's commitment to us. When Satan's fiery dart invites you to doubt whether God is for you because your circumstances on that particular moment are bleak and unpromising, God points to the cross and He says, Do you see how much I love you? Circumstances will fluctuate, but what God did for you on the cross is cemented in all eternity and for all eternity. God could have abandoned you to His judgment against sin, but instead He sent His Son to suffer in your place. So who can be against us? The answer is no one. Not even Satan. The second fiery dart is who will bring any charge. The accusations that Satan makes, let's face it, they feel pretty on target, don't they? There are times when we feel those accusations and we just have to say that's a pretty reasonable assumption. Revelation 12 verse 10 says that Satan accuses Christians consistently. Day and night, that's what it says. Satan looks for opportunities to accuse us. And what he says is once the true facts come out against you, And about you, God won't have anything to do with you. In other words, when you are vetted, as we use that expression now about political candidates, 
when you are vetted and your past is explored and it is out there on the table for all to see, uh, the shell game will be over. Right now you're playing a nice little shell game. And that little pea that you don't want anybody to see, you're able to kind of keep it hidden away, but one day the, all the shells are going to be taken away. And there will be your life. And that's what Satan says. You're not fit to stand in the presence of God, and one day all of that's going to be painfully obvious. What is our defense to that charge? Martin Luther who, if you know anything about Luther, you know that he certainly had a thing or uh, uh, he knew a thing or two about these types of attacks. Uh, Luther emphasized the need to see the gospel that saves us is outside us. Think of what that means. At our church, we have the uh, Trinity Hymnal. And if you had the Trinity Hymnal right now, I would say turn... To page 871, you would find the 33rd question of the Shorter Catechism uh, that defines justification. Justification, it says, is an act of God's free grace wherein He pardoneth all our sins and accepteth us as righteous in His sight only for the righteousness of Christ imputed to us. Underline that phrase. Only for the righteousness of Christ imputed to us and received by faith alone. And so our defense against this fiery dark is that the righteousness that God sees is not that of His, uh, of us, but it is that of His Son. It is the righteousness of Christ which is imputed to us. John Newton wrote in 18th century England that when faced with such accusations, his response was to tell Satan that Christ had died. Ephesians 6.14 says that we have a breastplate of righteousness. Satan cannot penetrate that breastplate of righteousness. It is the righteousness of Christ. Just remember that Christ has died for you, and Christ has taken God's judgment upon Himself. That third fiery dart, who can condemn us? Despite our experience of forgiveness as Christians we will still face condemnation one day. The difference between accusation and condemnation is that condemnation is what takes place when an accusation is well-founded. When that accusation has merit, then it is condemnation. Satan can accuse, but he can't condemn. Satan can accuse, but he cannot condemn. He wants to make us feel condemned, but he has no power to condemn us. Romans 8.1 says, There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Paul asks, Who is to condemn us? Satan certainly seeks to. But Paul responds that Christ has died, that Christ has been raised, that Christ is seated at the right hand of God, and Christ is making intercession for us. Jesus died for our sins, but His ministry did not end there. He is interceding for you this morning, not condemning you. And finally, who can separate us from the love of Christ? 
Paul changes his tactic here. He doesn't present an argument as he has in those other three points. Verse 30 is a good way of appreciating why Paul doesn't think another argument is necessary. God's purpose for us in Christ is absolutely certain to be accomplished. It says, and those whom he predestined, he also called, and those whom he called, he also justified, and those whom he justified, he also glorified. Paul is so confident that nothing can thwart or frustrate God's plan for you, that he speaks of you being glorified in the past tense. It is that certain. The shield of faith in Christ is the defense that we have against each and every one of these charges. Someone may be here this morning who says, well, Satan, uh, when he accuses me, I don't have a defense. Because I don't have Jesus Christ in my life. I have accusation and I have condemnation because the righteousness of Christ has not been imputed to me. I know that. I'm a stranger to God's grace. I know Jesus isn't making intercession for me. And if that is indicative of your condition this morning, I would plead with you to ponder what we've talked about. I would plead with you to ask Jesus Christ to be the shield of faith in your life. To be that one who would cover you with His righteousness. Who would impute to you His righteousness. So that in that day when you are accused and you are condemned, that you will be safe in the possession of your Savior. Christ wants to be that shield to you. If you will trust Him, He will forgive you. He will keep you going. And as Paul says in Romans 8, He will take you home. Let's pray together. Father, we do this day acknowledge just how prone we are to feel despair and to feel an emptiness that just cuts to the very marrow of our bones. We ask today that our confidence would would be in Christ, that we would take these words to heart, that they would resolve many problems in our lives, that you would elevate us even as we live in a dark world, even as we live in the world that Dietrich Bonhoeffer occupied, may we have our eyes upon the One who is that Lamb of God who was slain before the foundation of the world, the One who has gone before us, who has lived a perfect life, who has died for our sins, who has placed Himself in the crosshairs for us. Oh Father, what a love we have received And at this time of the year, we thank you for that that great and perfect gift. It's in the name of Jesus we pray. Amen.